Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Stop. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Tonight I've got two stories for you that seem, at first glance, to be completely unrelated. Muscles, as in biceps, and cardboard boxes. The unlikely connection is that they're both things that start strong and then weaken over time. We'll hear more about the science of testing cardboard boxes, why you would and what you can learn later in the show. But first up, muscles. The good news is that if you're in your 20s, your muscles are probably the strongest they'll ever be. The bad news is it's all downhill from there. Although you might not start to notice that you're not as strong as you used to be until you hit your 50s. And by the time you're in your 70s and 80s, many of us will be very frail indeed. There's a special word for this, sarcopenia, a word that literally means poverty of the flesh. Lack of weight-bearing exercise is one cause of muscle wasting, and another is just old age. The question of what exactly is going on with our muscles as we age is one that intrigues University of Otago neuroscientist Phil Sheard. As we get older, the main driver that results in people transitioning from dependence to independence is frailty. And frailty is, is a global term that encompasses many things, the major one of which is musculoskeletal weakness. So that's deterioration of the bones and deterioration of the muscles. So people tend to become weak, and as they become weaker, they lose their capacity to do the things to look after themselves that they've done their whole lives. So you can imagine relatively frail older people who can no longer lift themselves out of the bath or who can no longer carry their groceries from the car up their front steps into the house. Or they're prone to falls, perhaps. And they're prone to falls, that's right. So a major cause of, of morbidity amongst older people is, is falls. And the major cause of falls is weakness. So... What we want to know is, is why and how do we become weak? Phil says that we start to lose muscle strength in our late 20s, although we may not realise how much we've lost until we're in our 50s. It's clearly a degenerative biological process, and because you think of it as being something that affects primarily the muscles, then it's reasonable to go to the muscles first and say, what's wrong with my muscles? Can you just explain to me what a muscle is? So if you imagine a muscle as a, as a box of straws that are hollow tubes, so a muscle fibre would be one straw in that box and a muscle would be the whole box of straws, a collection of them. Each of those one muscle fibres has within it a specific set of proteins whose job it is, once they're activated, is to make physical force. It's not a single cell. Muscle fibres are made during development by many individual pre-muscle cells joining together to make one very, very, very big long tube that runs for a part of the length of the muscle as a whole. 
So muscles as a whole can be in humans half a metre long. You're gesturing at your upper leg. I'm gesturing at my thigh, and so my thigh muscles might be half a metre long. So there's a tendon that connects the muscle to the bone at each end, but between the tendons we've got a, a complex network of muscle fibres. In general, they don't run the whole length of the muscle. They have complex anatomical arrangements that allows the fibres themselves to be relatively short. The bigger the tube is, so if you think of that as the calibre of a straw, a big fat straw that you might get to drink something thick would be a strong muscle fibre and a skinny straw that you might use to drink lemonade would be a weak muscle fibre. So what's happening with our muscles as we get older? Why do they shrink and lose their strength? Phil has been investigating this in mice and he says that there used to be two possible explanations. One is that whole muscle fibres might die. So that is, you might have, when you're 20 years old, 100,000 fibres in a muscle, and by the time you're 60, that might be down to 60,000 muscle fibres. And the more muscle fibres you take away, the fewer you've got and the weaker the muscle would be. So that's one theory. That's one theory. And the second theory is that, irrespective of whether or not you lose any muscle fibres, the muscle fibres that you've got might shrink. I no longer think that fibre death is a significant contributor to age-related loss of mass. That leaves fibre shrinkage. So the question then that we come to is, well, all right, if fibres are shrinking, is it all fibres or is it some fibres? And if it's some fibres, what's different or special about them? And is it the muscle's fault or are they innocent victims in this complex play? Well, so the answer to those questions are that in general it's some fibres, not all of them. In, In the animals that we investigate, if we look at an elderly muscle, we'll find typically that the great majority of the muscle fibres actually look normal and healthy and happy, and a small proportion of them look very, very small. They've shrunk away... Uh, in some cases almost to the point that we can't recognise them as muscle fibres. It's a process that we call atrophy. So these are severely atrophied fibres. We believe, actually, that disuse is a primary driver for atrophy. So the question then would be, well, why would a subset of muscle fibres undergo atrophy whilst others look perfectly normal? And the answer to that comes actually from the nervous system. So your brain and your nervous system drive your muscles. Your muscles don't do anything of their own volition. They don't do anything of their own. You take the nerve away, you take the brain away, your muscles sit quietly and do nothing. So does every muscle fibre have its own nerve? How does that work? Yeah. So each muscle fibre receives contact from the nervous system at one point on its length. But each nerve provides the input to many muscle fibres. The point where the the nerve makes contact with the muscle fibres is called a neuromuscular junction. If we look in young animals, every muscle fibre has one neuromuscular junction with a very typical structural form. If we look in old animals, we find small but significant, maybe at any one time, 10% of the muscle fibres would have no nerve on them at all. The nerve has just gone. And others, we see there's a nerve there, but the the morphology, the shape and the pattern of connection between the nerve and the muscle looks very abnormal. Instead of it forming a coherent, joined cluster of connections, it becomes fragmented. So it, it looks like a lot of little tiny islands of connection. 
And those islands are, are typical features that are widely described that we and others have described as, a, as a, what looks like part of the, the typical ageing progression, that a normal neuromuscular junction, the first stage in its deterioration is that it becomes fragmented, and the next stage of deterioration is apparently that the nerve withdraws and that the muscle fibre loses its contact altogether. If that's happening relatively early in this degenerative cycle, as I said, in humans it might be beginning already by age 30, in those early stages, the muscle fibre having lost its contact from its nerve apparently can send out a chemical signal indicating into the environment that it's lost its nerve. And any nearby nerve fibre is potentially capable of responding to that chemical signal by growing an extra little sprout out and making a new connection on that muscle fibre and taking it over. And that certainly occurs. There's strong evidence for that. So we get this process that some fibres lose their nerve and then other nearby nerves take over and provide contact with those. The capacity of, of, of nerves to do that is, appears to be limited. They can't continually keep branching and making more and more connections. So as we get older, as more nerves withdraw, increasingly it becomes more likely that there's no nerve in the vicinity that has the capacity to reoccupy that site and the nerve remains denervated. The muscle fibres themselves, to all intents and purposes, are normal. It's just they've got no nerve and they can't be activated. So they undergo what we think is a disuse atrophy. They shrink and they get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. This brings us to the role our nervous system is playing in all of this. The spinal cord is the central nervous system. You wouldn't necessarily think of it as your brain. I do, actually. I think of your brain as being the brain and the spinal cord. Let's call it the central nervous system. So the, the cells, actually, that, that make direct contact with your muscle fibres, they live in your spinal cord. They don't do much on their own either. They get told by cells that are in your brain, up, up in, your, in your head, when to be activated. So there's a chain of command. And the last nerve step in the chain of command is the nerve cells in the spinal cord. Now, if they were to disappear, any time one of those nerve cells in the spinal cord were to die, then all of the muscle fibres, I said those nerve cells each contact many muscle fibres, then all of those muscle fibres would lose their nerve. A hypothesis would be that nerve cells in the spinal cord are dying in old age, and that would be consistent with the loss of nerves from groups of muscle fibres in the muscle. So the question is, does that occur? And when we look, there's absolutely no doubt at all that between being young and elderly, about 20% of the cells in the spinal cord that make direct contact with muscle fibres and that are responsible for activating muscle fibres, about 20% of those cells die. And that means that on average 20% of the muscle fibres in the muscle will have lost their input. So it's uh, a nerve problem. That's exactly right. A major driver for muscular weakness is nerve deterioration. I look at, uh, in, a, in a muscle and I see degenerating nerve terminals and I think that that's got something to do with old age. But if I saw that in a young animal, I'd say that animal has a disease. It has a, some kind of a muscle-wasting disease. In motor neuron diseases, or ALS as it's called, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is motor neuron disease, and another type of neurodegenerative disease called frontotemporal dementia, which is a dementia that relates to death of nerve cells in a particular part of the brain. In both of those cases, there's a strong genetic component. So there are patients with those diseases that have a family trait. And in that cohort of patients, the defect's been linked to a specific 
chromosome defect, a specific gene. It's called C9ORF72. It's a defect in the cell's ability to transition important substances between the inside of the cell's nucleus and the cell's cytoplasm. So the nucleus, of course, is where all the genes are located. And so the cell is constantly making new proteins to repair proteins that have outlived their usefulness or, or degraded or damaged in some way. So the, the cell's receiving instructions and responding to those instructions. And so the, the genetic material is enclosed in quite a secure membrane, which is an envelope, which is inside the cell. And it seems that one of these defects is a problem in trafficking either instructions into or the first manifestations of those in instructions being enacted out of the nucleus. So this is called nuclear cytoplasmic transport. And for a variety of complicated reason, reasons, that ultimately leads to the death of the cell in these patients that have got this type of motor neuron disease. So we just actually asked the question, well, if that's what's going on in motor neuron disease, I wonder, I wonder whether or not Motor neuron disease is an accelerated manifestation of a process that might actually be also be going on in old age. So it's just like a speed-up ageing, maybe? Might be, yeah. So our next challenge is to try to understand what is happening in old age that leads to a dysfunction in that process. And the other little arm of interest that we have is that we know that, that physical exercise is pretty much good for everything, you know, in moderation. Use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. It helps us keep our muscles and keep our strength and our mobility and our independence. It helps with our bone density. And also it helps, you know, there's now evidence emerging uh, rapidly, actually, that it helps with cognitive function as well and preservation of that. And not just in older people, but actually in younger people. And the question then is, does exercise help delay, slow or prevent these degenerative changes that I've just described? So we have some animals that are regularly active, and we look at those too. And their muscles are better, their neuromuscular junctions are better and healthier. The number of nerve cells that die in the spinal cords of animals that are regularly active from middle age to old age is reduced. And the proteins that we think change in old age that contribute to the death of nerve cells in old age they seem to be preserved in animals that are regularly active. So one of the things that exercise is doing to keep muscles stronger is to preserve neuromuscular junctions by preserving motor neurons by delaying or slowing the process that results in the death of motor neurons. What is it that exercise is doing? Well, we know that active muscles make substances called nerve growth factors or neurotrophins in amounts that's proportional to the way that they're used. So a very active muscle makes more of some kinds of nerve support substances than a, than a not very active muscle. So it's and a bit like a positive feedback it loop. It is, yeah, it is a feedback thing. And so the use it or lose it phrase actually has a biological basis that muscle fibres actually respond to being used by providing food to the nerve cells that provide their activation. The clear message is that being active will do things to your nerves and muscles to allow you to be active for longer. 
The more you do, the more you'll be able to do and the longer you'll be able to do it for. Within reason, of course. I'm not suggesting that anyone should go out and start training for a marathon. And what's interesting is amongst that cohort that have the opportunity to undertake monitored exercise, which is voluntary, we don't enforce it, we just give them the opportunity to be active and if they want to take it, they do. And to a very significant extent, the benefits of activity derive from being busy by just a moderate increase on not being busy. So those who do a little bit get almost as much benefit as those who do a lot. Thanks, Phil. That's Phil Sheard from the University of Otago. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou Hei hōtaka e pānaki a papatuanuku, tangaroa, meirangi nui. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ National. And now, the humble cardboard box is the unsung hero of the New Zealand economy. Every year, millions of cardboard boxes, containing billions of dollars of export goods, leave and arrive our shores. Many of them are carrying fruit, butter or meat, that needs to be stored in chillers for months on end, and not all of them will make it. More correctly known as sea flute corrugated paperboard cartons, cardboard boxes are sturdy workhorses. Their design dates back nearly 150 years. And while most of us pay scant regard to boxes, unless we're shifting house, in which case we can't get enough of them, there are people out there trying to improve boxes so they can withstand the rigours of chilling and shipping. Lou Sherman is one of these, and she runs a facility at Scion that's dedicated to testing cardboard boxes. It's known as the White Room. Basically what this is, is a specially designed kind of room inside of a room where we test the performance of cardboard boxes in simulated chilled supply chain conditions. So the whole idea with it was that we wanted to be able to accurately control temperature and humidity and then within the room we've got 25 testers that apply a constant load and measure the height of that box over time. Why packaging? Why cardboard boxes? I mean, there's something totally ubiquitous and someone like me pays absolutely no attention to them. A cardboard box is a cardboard box. Yeah. What we have in New Zealand is that we're an export nation, right? And a lot of our products, that, in order to get to these export markets overseas, they have to go in some form of packaging. And cardboard boxes are a really interesting form of uh, packaging because they're made from renewable resources. They are recyclable but at the same time, their performance can be impacted by humidity. So basically what we're trying to do here is to try to understand how we can optimise the performance of these cardboard boxes, because there's probably not a better form of packaging for that sort of application, but try to make them more robust in that sort of changing humidity environment that we see in, in cool supply chains, like for fruit and meat and dairy and that sort of thing. I was going to say, I was thinking of blocks of cheese yeah. <laughs> came to mind. So, yeah. yeah, food that has to be kept cool and freezers and fr- chillers are inherently slightly damp places. Is yeah, that the they're slightly damp. And the main issue is when the humidity changes. This sort of research has been done for, like, years and years, yeah? Like, and it's, a, I guess, an unsolved problem. What we know from researchers in the past is that if you hold a box at a quite a high, constant humidity, 
uh, so that, that moisture content is quite high in that box, it will actually last longer than if you start to cycle the humidity. So as long as the conditions are stable, it's okay? Yeah, but, but in reality, the conditions are never stable, right? Because within uh, chillers, there's a defrost cycle, so there's a, there can be spikes in the, in the humidity. Even how about like day versus night can change because the boxes naturally want to absorb and desorb um, moisture. That's just the nature of, of fibres then we see that those, those boxes will actually absorb moisture and expand slightly and then desorb moisture and, um, and shrink slightly. And we can show using this sort of facility where we can control the humidity, so cycle it from 50 to 90, then we can show that that, that box is actually contracting and expanding even though it's under a constant load, which is... Uh, a similar scenario as it would be under on a real shipping pallet. Because that's the issue with boxes, they're all stacked on top of each other, aren't they? So yeah. they're not just holding something inside, they've got to be strong enough to have a whole lot of stuff on top of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what what we see in industry is they're currently using this test called a BCT in order to measure the performance of boxes. And what BCT stands for is box compression test. And it basically measures the ultimate strength of that box and then they put in some safety factors then they assume that they can only load that box to maybe 25% of its ultimate strength but that sort of test doesn't really replicate what's actually happening in a real supply chain but this test where we're applying a constant load then we can get more accurate indication of, of what how that box might perform in a real supply chain. I should actually get you to explain the acronym for it because you call it the white room. Oh, so yeah. what does, what does good, white good idea, stand yeah. for, apart from the fact that it is actually a white colour? And it actually stands for weight, humidity intervals, temperature experiment. So we're applying a constant load. Uh, we're changing the humidity so we can, we can modify the, the intervals of how much we want to be at 50, how much we want to be at 90, like different lengths of time. Uh, and then we can design experiments around that to, to sort of try to understand how materials will perform in, in those sort of different changing environments. So just talk me through this graph that we're looking at. So it's, it's a graph that climbs quite quickly at the beginning and then it's got a long, slightly sloping angle to it and then it climbs very steeply again at the end. So this is kind of a classic creep curve. Most materials, if they're under a constant load, they would produce a, a, a similar sort of curve. Even this building will be slowly creeping because uh, uh, the materials are under a constant load. So what this chart really shows us is that there are three stages to creep. The first is primary creep. That's when you initially apply the load. Then there's quite a big change in that, in that material height. It sort of goes oomph. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then after that, then uh, we get sort of a linear relationship in terms of height versus time. And that's where this, the, the material is slowly changing in height over time at a, a constant rate and then finally when it kind of it reaches a point of failure then it will very quickly change in height and that's that's the the final third step in the, in the creep. So does this enable you to speed things up as well so something that might in real life take six months to happen you can speed it up a whole lot? Yeah yeah actually we normally call it accelerated creep or, or moisture accelerated creep and the sorts of cycles that we follow in the um, white room 
would, you wouldn't really see that sort of rate in industry. But what it means is that we, because we have such good control over temperature and humidity, is that we can repeat tests. So what sort of information does the manufacturer get out? They might go, oh, all my boxes collapsed at the corners or the side panels buckled or... Yeah, so you can uh, definitely get some visual information back around what is the um, failure mechanism. But the most interesting data is probably the creep rate or the lifetime. So then you can make comparisons between different boxes and say that that's if you've got a higher creep rate, and when I talk about creep rate, actually, I mean that secondary uh, portion of the creep curve. Not the long, slow change. Yeah, because that kind of gives you an indication of how long that box is going to going to last you know if it's a really steep curve you know it's not going to last long but if it's a really shallow one then it might last quite a long time so although we can't go in and see what's happening because we don't want to change the humidity and the conditions in there it is wired up so that from the outside here you can actually look at some information see what's going on yeah so what you can see here is results of nine of the the testers within the room and they are displaying the results of the the displacement or the height of those boxes and those testers and you can see that as we have cycled the humidity from 50 to 90 and this is over a, like um, a 12 hour period so 12 hours at 50, 12 hours at 90 you can see that the, the height of that box has actually changed during that cycle. So what are those boxes doing getting gradually shorter? Yeah, and you can see there's four there that are still continuing to to cycle in humidity or cycle in height, but then you can see that, yeah, the other boxes have all collapsed. Are they all the same boxes, do you know? No, I think there's three different variables running in the room at the moment, so it's it's not surprising that, that some boxes have collapsed and failed and some are continuing to last longer. So do you have anything inside the boxes in there or is it just the boxes standing on their own? Yeah, at the moment that is part of the experiment. In reality, in industry, there will always be something inside the box. So generally we want to make sure that the box at least fails outwards and doesn't, is not failing inwards. So um, normally we do try to put something in there, even if it doesn't have a, a load or a weight or a, a significant weight, um, just to make sure that the, that the failure mechanism is similar to what we would see in a real supply chain. You've actually just grabbed a a handy box that's lying around. Um, Yeah, this is one of the boxes from one of our experiments, which has failed. So the experiment hasn't failed, it's just the box has failed, which is exactly what we wanted to see happen. And it's interesting because it's kind of buckling outwards. Yeah, exactly. That's, I guess, part of the, the challenge of the research is around understanding what causes it to buckle in, in that exact way or that exact lo- location. So in the long term, that's really the, the challenge that we're trying to address um, at Scion with some of our research, is really trying to characterise the, the material or, or understand the fundamentals of what's making that material, the corrugated box or the corrugated paper within the box, to fail at that location. Thanks, Lou. That's Lou Sherman, and she is a scientist and cardboard box guru at Scion. And that's the show. If you'd like to listen to any of our stories again from this or past weeks, just head along to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. As well as audio, you'll find written stories, photos, links to scientific papers, 
And of course, you can sign up for our weekly email newsletter. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science or drop us an email at ourchangingworld at radionz.co.nz. Thanks for your company tonight. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Kia Pai Tōpō.